If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Esther, Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 1, we'll be in chapters 1 and 2 today, you should make your way there. Starting a new series today called Behind the Scenes, I'll explain what that means here in just a little bit. Uh, once again this morning, if you're here for, for the first time with us or, or the first time in a long time, uh, we would love the opportunity after the service today to meet with you. We won't keep you long. Uh, we'll probably keep you drier than you're going to be out there. As you can hear, the rain is still pouring. Um, but right over here in room 101, uh, we're going to have our guest reception right after the service, five minutes just to get to meet you personally. Uh, we know it's real easy to, and a lot of times we want to just kind of hide in a crowd like this, but we believe God created us for relationships. And the first step in that would be just getting to know you personally. So if you give us that, that privilege today or right after the service, room 101, uh, we would appreciate that. I want to talk to you today about the hiddenness of God. You may have never heard that term before, but we're going to use it a lot today, that the hiddenness of God. That I want to talk to you about the, the fact that for much of our lives, if we were to kind of average out the days of our lives, for, for the majority of that time, the reality is God just seems oftentimes distant. God seems as if he is far from us or perhaps even absent altogether. In the book of Esther, the reason that we're talking about this today is the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. You can read through these ten chapters, you will find no mention whatsoever of God. Only book in the Bible that that's that way. There's no mention of the temple, the place where God dwells. There's no mention of worship. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the Word of God. There's no mention of any kind of spirituality. The closest thing you can come up with is in chapter 4. There's one little mention of a thing called fasting, a spiritual discipline. It's, it's so devoid of the things of God, this little book of Esther, uh, that Martin Luther, the great leader of, of the Protestant Reformation, he despised this book. He said, I wish it had never been written and that it was not a part of our Bible. But he had to deal with it just as we do. I think one of the reasons that God included the book of Esther in the scriptures for us is because it helps us so much with our grappling with the hiddenness of God. The times in our lives that are so vast and sometimes so long where, where God just seems to be distant. He seems to be far from us, if there at all. And that's what we're going to grapple with some this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the end from the beginning this morning. The reality is that God is there, that He is powerful, that He is working, as this series is going to teach us. He is working behind the scenes in our lives in majestic and powerful ways, as we saw demonstrated in Miss Jane's testimony this morning. And I hope you'll see Him as we walk through this together. Esther chapter 1, I've got to set the scene just a little bit here uh, as we walk through this together. We're going we're gonna to see here in Esther chapter 1 that the king on the throne of the world at that time was a guy named King Xerxes, or if you have the translation I have, his other name was King Ahasuerus. It's a very fancy name. King Ahasuerus was on the throne. He was the leader of the world at that time, the most powerful 
people in the world were the Persians. They had conquered the Babylonians to become the new world power. Within a hundred years, they would, be ca- they would be conquered by the Greeks, who would then be the world power. But the Persians were the big guys on the block at this point in history, in the, four, the late 400s B.C. And we see here, during this time, that there's a series of kings that, that we need to kind of get a picture of so we can understand what's happening during this time in the world. The kings of Persia. The first one that we... Uh, come in contact with in the scriptures is a guy named Cyrus. He was Cyrus the Great, and this is the king that God used to deliver his people from exile in Babylon and to allow them to return back to their homeland in Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. 538 BC, Cyrus allowed them to return back to their homeland. Not all of them did, as we'll find out though, Esther being among those who remained in Babylon in that area of the world. After him came Cambyses, who ruled for about 10 years, and during that 10 years, the work on the temple stopped. Uh, there was another dark series of years for the people of Israel, uh, not, not a great time for them. And then after him came Darius. Darius was the one who, who called for the temple to be finished. And in 515 B.C., the temple was completed. This is the second temple. The one, first one had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was completed, and God's people found peace once again because the temple for them represented the presence of God among his people. You see, though they, though they had known the hiddenness of God during their time in Babylon, the, the restored temple meant for them, God is with us once again. After Darius comes the king, we're going to be looking at King Xerxes. He was also known as King Ahasuerus. We'll talk about some of the events in his life, but he was the king who ruled during the days of Esther. And then after King Ahasuerus is King Artaxerxes who ruled during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are books that we've looked at in previous days. So here's what's happening in chapter 1. I'm going to sum this up for us, and then we're going to look at a passage in chapter 2 this morning. In chapter 1, we find King Ahasuerus, and history tells us that during the early years of his reign, he was preparing for a gigantic war against the Greeks. Now, the Persians were the top dogs in the world at this time, but the Greeks had been gaining ground, literally speaking. They had been gaining ground, and King Darius, Xerxes' father, had already gone against the Greeks once and had already been soundly defeated. And so, and the little boy decides he wants to try to fill in where his dad left off. And he was preparing to go to war against the Greeks here in chapter 1. And the way that they would do that during that day is you kind of had to sell it. Okay, anybody know a good salesman? Okay, now what a good salesman does is you, you got to sell it, right? And so basically a good salesman will take his clients and you're going you're gonna to take them out and you're not going to take them to Subway or McDonald's, right? You're going to go Ruth's Chris, you're going to go at least O'Charlie's. Okay, it's got to be someplace fancy. And that's what's happening here in chapter 1. It says that King Ahasuerus was, was having a banquet. And this banquet, this feast, lasted for six months. He was really needing to sell it. And during this six months, he brought in all of his powerful people from every province of which he was the ruler. Now keep in mind, he was ruling a, land, a, a, a portion of land that begins at what is the, the known borders of India today, if you know your geography, and stretches all the way across the map to the northern parts of Africa. This was the largest empire the world had ever known up to this point in history. Only the Greeks would surpass the size of his empire under Alexander the Great. 
He was the most powerful man in the world, showing off his riches, having a six-month-long feast, inviting all of his, his, uh, his powerful people around him to glory in his wealth, to gain their trust and approval, to go against the Greeks. And then one particular week happened during this feast when he had a little too much wine. Bad things happen when we have a little too much wine. And the bad thing that happened was he was no longer satisfied with showing off his wealth, he then decided to show off his wife. Now, gentlemen, that's a bad move, at least in the way he did it. Picture the scene. Basically, uh, Ahasuerus and his drunken buddies are all sitting around, and they're sharing drunken stories with one another. And then he gets this crazy idea. I'm going to have my queen, Queen Vashti, come in and put on a beauty show for us. I'm going to have her come in against my, amidst my drunken compatriots, and I'm going to show her off. This was no flattering thing for Vashti. And the scriptures record here in chapter 1 that she refused. She said, I will not go. I will not demean myself before a bunch of drunken men. She's a woman of character who refused to do so, and for that, she lost her position as the queen. That's what happens in chapter 1. It's setting the scene for the events that we're going to see in this book. With that being said, the king begins a search for a new wife. That's what's happening here in chapter 2. If you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, would you do so? The king is searching for a new wife. He has been through several candidates before we pick up in verse 15. We meet Esther. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, when her time came, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor. Notice that word favor. You'll see that again, and we're going to come back to that word. She was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor. There's that word again. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were, brought, were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of of the king. And you can be seated. Father, as we work through these scriptures today, as we, as we walk through your word today, Father, would you, 
Would you help us to grapple with those times in our own lives, the many times when you just seem to be hidden from us? It seems as though the times are few and far between when we sense your intimate presence, when we see your hand powerfully at work. The day-to-day just seems to be mundane and even sometimes devoid of you. Help us to know we're not alone in that, Lord. Give us comfort, but even more, Father, give us the gift of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the scene is set. The king who dismissed his last queen is searching for a new queen to sit with him on the throne. I want to show you three themes this morning, and if you want to follow along on the, in the outline in your bulletin, you're welcome to do so, but three themes that really encompass this book and help us to kind of get a grasp of, of what's taking place here. Each of these themes uh, is, is two uh, different ideas opposed to one another. The first one is the theme of providence versus coincidence. I want to tell you today that this is These are two ways that you might look at the world. These are two potential worldviews that exist. The first one, the the worldview of providence, is the one that sees a sovereign God who created all things and is in control of all things. This is no deistic God who created all things, got them spinning and then departed to no longer be active in the world. No, the the hand of providence is active in even the minor details of our lives. There is nothing that escapes his notice. This is the God of the Bible, the God of providence. The idea of providence uh, bears with it this idea that he is our provider. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes to us from the Father of heavenly lights. With him there is no shifting of shadows. He is the unchanging God. Every good thing that we experience in life comes from him, Tim Keller put it this way. He said, if you have money, power, status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. This is a biblical worldview. None of which you earned. In short, all your resources, everything that you have, are in the end the gift of God. This is one worldview. That everything that we have comes to us as a gift of God. This is not, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. This is not, I worked really hard to gain everything that I have. Not to diminish the value of hard work. The Bible commends hard work. But it constantly reminds us of the providence of Almighty God who gives us all things according to His grace. As we hear overhead right now, it's fitting today that, that we're hearing this because the Bible says that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust, upon the godly and the ungodly. There's this thing called common grace, which means that God extends gracious and good things to all peoples at all times, even the ones who radically reject Him. The rain even falls upon the atheists today. And in God's perfect sovereignty, he shows, he sees fit to show good things to people. But the other side of the coin is this side 
of coincidence. That so many people in our culture today are living according to the principles of coincidence, which basically just means this. Things just happen. There's not really any rhyme or reason. There may be cause and effect, but that's really all there is. There's not a a sovereign hand behind all things. It's really just a series of events that randomly happen. There's no real meaning to it. So basically live your life the best you know how, and that's going to be the end of things. Providence versus coincidence. I I want to show you three potential coincidences here in these opening chapters. And I hope you'll see there's a little bit more to the story than that. First of all, first coincidence, a queen deposed. You look at chapter 1 and you see this account of of the king getting upset with his queen because she won't come show off for his buddies, then she's kicked out. And we can take that and we go, well, what, what does that really have to do with the rest of the story? And I, we need to understand it has everything to do with the rest of the story. God is laying out the groundwork for an amazing rescue of his people, one among many rescues that we see in the scripture. God is faithful to redeem and to rescue his people whenever they're in danger. And danger was coming before they even realized it was coming. And God was laying the groundwork for their salvation before they even knew they needed to be saved. Believer, did you hear that? God was laying the groundwork for your salvation before you even knew that you needed to be saved. And that's why I love Jane's testimony. She didn't realize it in those days when, when she was just waiting for the God that would, that would cause the curtains to rise and fall three times, give her a sign. She didn't realize it, but now when she looks back on the days of her life, she sees the sovereign hand of God in places Even when she didn't believe in him, and even when she was living in rejection of him, he was continuing to guide her, to protect her, to prepare the way for her to come to him. It's so important for us to understand that. The queen deposed, God is setting the stage here. But then something happens in between chapter 1 and 2, historically speaking, that that the Bible doesn't talk about, but that I want to talk with you about for a moment. There's a gap of of about seven years in between chapters 1 and 2. Vashti is deposed because she wouldn't do what the king said. And then King Ahasuerus goes off to war against the Greeks. And history tells us that that happened around 480 B.C., that he went to war against the Greeks. And just like his father before him, just like Darius, he was roundly defeated. They wiped the floor with King Ahasuerus. His entire navy was destroyed by the Greeks and most of his army as well. And he kind of came back to Susa, his capital city, with his tail between his legs. And then chapter 2 kicks in and it says, and in those days, King Ahasuerus remembered Vashti. Uh, It doesn't say whether he just got a little sentimental. He he, he thought about the good th- times that they had had. Perhaps he had some regrets over being an utter fool in relation to her. But for whatever reason, he remembered Vashti. His heart was heavy. He longed for the companionship that he had once had. And his advisor said, Okay, king, uh, now, now that your weakness has been exposed for all the world to see, it's time for you to go after a new queen. And I want to show you What he did at the third coincidence that happens here in chapter 2 is a contest was imposed. A contest was imposed. Now, 
no one in this room, I'm sure, would want to admit to whether or not you watch this show, but there is a show on TV that stole its storyline from Esther chapter 2. It's called The Bachelor. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to be real straight up here. I am not in any way recommending The Bachelor to help you understand Esther. I'm saying Esther will help you understand The Bachelor. Because King Ahasuerus was the original Bachelor, and he makes all those guys that have been on TV look like nobodies. Not a one of them was as powerful or, or as wealthy or as well-liked because he would kill you if you didn't like him as King Ahasuerus. He was the original Bachelor, and here's what was taking place. His advisor said, okay, here's the deal, King. We know you were looking for a new queen. We know you missed Vashti, but you can't have her back. You already kicked her out, and and no king's command can be uh, overturned. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out into all of your territory. Remember, between India and Ethiopia, that part of the world, and we're going to gather together all the beautiful young ladies. One historian records there was at least... There were at least 400 young ladies that were gathered up for this contest. That's a whole lot more you're going to see on The Bachelor. They ain't got time for that. Okay? And they're, we're going to bring them together, and then here's what we're going to do. We're not, just going to, we're not just going to bring them before you, beautiful as they might be. We're going to spend a year, you can read it for yourself here in chapter 2, a year beautifying these already beautiful women. We're going to give them beauty treatments for a year before, they ever, before you ever lay eyes on them. And then one by one, they're each going to get a date with the king that we'll talk some more about before we finish. And you can decide which one you like the best, and she'll be your new queen. By the way, they got something a whole lot better than a rose. The winner got a crown and got to sit side by side with the most powerful man in the world. Two things about this contest before we move on. First of all, this all happened according to the sovereign hand of God. He is preparing the way for the salvation of his people. But second of all, you need to understand that the scriptures are fairly unclear as it describes this process, whether the women who were involved were there by their own choice or under compulsion. There were only three prerequisites for being in the contest. You had to be young, You had to be beautiful, and you had to be unmarried. And yes, he was just that shallow. But God used this sick process and contest to bring about his sovereign plan. Speaking of God's providence, this week in our Bible reading, we read Job chapter 10. You'll remember Job is the dude that had it all and then lost it all. That's the best way I can summarize Job's life. He had everything that you could possibly want, a great family. He was the wealthiest man of his time. He had it all, and then literally overnight, he lost it all. He lost his health. He lost his children. The only thing he was left with was was his nagging wife. You can read it in the scriptures. I didn't say that. God did. Okay? That's all he was left with. And even she was telling him, why don't you just curse God and die? She She had the gift of encouragement. Job chapter 10, after Job has lost everything, I want you to see what Job says. This is the same Job who says, the Lord has given and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible says that Job did not sin in what he said. Even after he lost everything, he was still praising God. Job chapter 10, Job says this. You have granted me life 
and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. I want want you to picture the context of this verse. Job is sitting on a pile of trash with oozing sores all over his body, and the only relief that he can find is to scrape those sores with a piece of broken pottery. And he says this, God, you gave me life, still trusting in your steadfast love, and your care, that word care could also be translated your providence. Your providence has preserved my spirit. Job had lost everything except for his faith in God. With that being said, the second theme of this book that I want to show you this morning is is the theme of purity versus compromise. Now, I don't know about you. Many of you have probably heard this story of Esther many times. And and to be perfectly honest, I think I had an impression of Esther that was kind of like my impression of Naomi from the book of Ruth. As a kid growing up, you hear stories like this and you just think, man, what a heroic person you know, this person was, uh, how, how virtuous they were and, and how awesome it was that God used this person. But Esther had some flaws here and I need to show you some of the things that are going on here. It says that you know, he brought all these women together. He brought all these hundreds of women together and he was looking for a queen. They went through a year-long beauty treatment to prepare them to spend one night with the king. And folks, I don't want to be any more graphic than I have to be, but I need you to understand what's taking place here. When it says when Esther went in for her night with the king, they were not going into the king's chamber for a long, extended game of Monopoly. And if you haven't put two and two together yet, let me help you a little bit more they left the part of the king's harem where all the virgins resided, and after their night with the king, they went to a different part of the harem where the king's concubines resided. The king took from these young ladies a precious gift. And for the rest of their days, all the ones who didn't receive the crown were left simply to live out their days much like widows. They could never marry. They would never be with another man again unless the king happened to call upon them for his own sick needs. This is what was on the line. And in the midst of this, we find Esther at the very least playing along with the game. Obviously, the Bible doesn't say exactly what happened, but we know enough about the Persian kings to know that he was shallow enough and superficial enough to be after pretty much one thing. And she followed along, and and some have said, well, what choice did she have? But, But if you look at the book of Daniel... A young man who had very much some of the similar kinds of, uh, of temptations laid before him. 
who also served under these Persian kings who, who were tyrants. And Daniel was given so many temptations to turn away from God, and yet we find Daniel persisting in his faith even to going to the lion's den. And he did not know that his God was going to shut the mouths of those lions. We see Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, willing to uphold their faith in God, even if it meant being cast into the fiery furnace. And they had no idea that Jesus was going to show up there and rescue them in the midst of that blazing furnace. Some of us looked at Esther and said, well, what choice did she have? Folks, I want to say to us this morning, there is always a choice between purity and compromise. The only question is this, how much are you willing to pay? How much is purity worth? There are temptations that would lead us away from God, and we're so quick to justify ourselves, but the Bible says very clearly, biblically speaking, the ends never justify the means. People look at this story and, and, they, and they look at Esther and they say, well, but if she hadn't done what she did, then she couldn't have been there to save the people. That does not justify the immorality that's hidden within this chapter. You say, well, if she hadn't gone along, then she probably would have been killed. She, she, she surely wouldn't have been able to accomplish the things God has for her. Folks, we need to understand, biblically speaking, the ends never justify the means. But, I want you to hear this word of grace. God will use even our sins to accomplish His ends. He will use even our sins to accomplish His purposes in our life. For every one of us in this room, I'm sure you you can think back on your life and you can be reminded today. The devil does a great job of reminding us of those days when we were far from God and we were engaged in immorality ourselves. Those days when we weren't willing to trust in his sovereignty and in his providence and we went our own way and we did our own thing and we rebelled against the holy God and we allowed sin to put us in slavery and we lived there for so many of us for so long in our lives. But let's not forget the grace of God, folks. He is the only one that can take the filthiness of our sin and bring something beautiful out of it. That's what he does here. And that's what God wants to do in our lives, not to leave us wallowing in the shame of our sin, but to deliver us from that shame and to use that very thing in our life that the devil meant for destruction to destroy us. He will take it and he will make something beautiful out of it. He is the only one who can make something out of nothing. When you were at your lowest, some of you in this room, you have this testimony. You were at the bottom of the barrel. You had given in to every temptation that existed. You had run farther from God than you even knew was possible. And it was there that he redeemed you. It was there that he bought you back. And now, what was just a place of shame is now a place of beauty as God uses that in your testimony. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I've persecuted and put in jail and sought to kill as many of the followers of Christ as I possibly could. But he said, God's grace is sufficient for me. 
His power was made perfect in my weakness. Many of you have that testimony today. And if you don't have it today, it can be yours. We'll talk about that more before we finish. Ezra 9, 9, we looked at this verse several weeks ago. People of God were once again turning away from the things of God, and yet Ezra says, yet our God has not forsaken us. They were engaging in, in, in bad relationships once again, and, God, and he says, our God has not forsaken us, but he has extended to us his steadfast love. It's the same phrase that's used here in Esther chapter 2, his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. He, God has continued to be faithful to us even when we weren't faithful. I want you to hear this this morning. God's faithfulness to you is not dependent upon your faithfulness to him. That's what all Job's buddies thought. You know, when Job was sitting on the trash heap, scraping himself with a piece of pottery, his buddies come around him, and they try to explain to Job why he's experiencing what he's experiencing. And here's the summary of about 40 chapters of what we're reading in the next couple of weeks. They said, Job, obviously you're having all these bad things happen because you've sinned against God. We know that God blesses those who do good and that he punishes those who do evil. That sounds right, doesn't it? And that would be the one true statement about God except for grace. For in the grace of God, in the amazing grace of God, he declares rebellious sinners righteous before him. You say, how can that be? We'll get there. Just stay with me. The third theme and the last of the three this morning is one of public faith versus concealment. You see, not just the events that happened in her one night with the king cast a little bit of a a shadow upon Esther's reputation, but it's also the fact that she did all she could to conceal her nationality and her, her faith in God. Now, some would say, well, yeah, but Mordecai told her to. Yeah, he he did. But she went along with the ruse. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Don't tell anybody that you are one of God's people. Hide yourself. Hide behind your beauty. Hide behind your charisma. Don't let anyone know that you belong to the people of God. But lest we be too hard on Esther, let's just go ahead and say it, folks. This is a constant temptation for the people of God in our culture. Students, I know. It's a constant temptation for you guys to hide your faith in Christ. It's so much easier that way. It's so much easier just to hide your faith in Christ because once you go public with your faith, that's when the difficult things start to happen. Let's go ahead and be reminded of the promises of Jesus who went more public with his faith than anyone ever has and it cost him his life. He went out teaching the things of God and performing great signs and wonders and they crucified him for it. And the same happens in our lives. We were never promised, we were never promised safety and protection by God. We were never promised the good life by God. We were never promised health, wealth, and prosperity despite what you might hear from many of our TV preachers today. In fact, Jesus said you're going to have trouble You're going to have persecution. The way to follow me is hard. It is narrow. It is difficult. But you can take heart 
because I've overcome the world. And at the end of that path that is hard and narrow and difficult lies an eternal weight of glory that will outweigh it all. Let me show you two last things this morning. I, I want you to see a couple of things about this idea of, of public faith versus, versus concealment. Esther chose to conceal her faith for the first four chapters of this book. The name Esther is a Persian name that means star. Now, uh, the reason I'm telling, sharing this with you is uh, names in the Old Testament were very important. Uh, we like our names today, but and they really meant something in the Old Testament. Her Persian name was Esther, which means star, and it was a reference to the, the false goddess Ishtar. And then she also has, as we see here in chapter 2, the name Hadassah, which was her Hebrew name. And the name Hadassah means myrtle, which is a reference to a tree. Now you take those two things, a reference to a tree and a reference to a star, and you're going, I don't really get it. What does this have to do with this story? Here's something cool God did. If you speak the name Esther, which is a Persian name, in the Hebrew language, it sounds very much like a Hebrew verb that has a particular meaning that has a lot to do with this story. You see, Esther, the name, sounds like the Hebrew verb, which means I am hiding. For the first four chapters, Esther is hiding, not wanting anyone to know who she really is is, not wanting anyone to know of her faith in God, not wanting anyone to know of her Jewish nationality, of her heritage in the Lord. I am hiding, but I want you to know this morning, it wasn't just Esther who is hiding. Behind the pages of the book of Esther, we find one who is hiding. He is the living God. You'll never find him explicitly mentioned here. You'll never find even any general references to him in this book. And yet it's written in such a way that you can't help but see the hand of God behind it. It either has to be a rash of amazing coincidences or it has to be providence. And I'm going to tell you folks, as many coincidences as there are in these ten chapters, the way events lined out, it takes more faith to believe that this all just happened, that it was all just coincidence, than it does to believe in the sovereign hand of Almighty God who is orchestrating all these events for the good of His people and the glory of His name. So what do we do with the hiddenness of God in our lives? What do, we, what do we do with the vast majority of days where God seems distant, where God seems hidden from us, where God seems altogether absent? I think the question we have to ask this morning is, why the hiddenness of God? Why doesn't he just come out and raise the curtain three times for us, as Jane talked about? Why doesn't he just come out and show himself to us, show us some miraculous sign that would, that would totally blow our minds so that we, he would know that he was real? Well, why, does he, why does God choose to reveal himself in this hidden way so often in our lives? Yes, we look in the scriptures and we see Red Sea experiences where the hand of God parted the sea and they walked through on dry ground. We, we see amazing experiences like the, the ten plagues that fell upon Egypt that delivered God's people from slavery. We see days like that. But more often than not, we see days like Esther. 
where God is hidden. God is behind the scenes. We wonder if he is even there. The purpose of the hiddenness of God is this. The hiddenness of God is what necessitates our faith. You see, faith is a gift of God. God gives us eyes of faith to be able to see that which is unseen. God gives us eyes of faith to be able to overcome our doubts and our fears. God gives us eyes of faith as, as a gift. He gives us faith. The, you need to understand this morning is faith is not something, if you have it today, faith is not something that you worked up in yourself. You didn't all of a sudden just decide to trust in God. You didn't all of a sudden decide just to believe in God. In Ephesians chapter 2, you can read it at home today. Ephesians chapter 2 says that faith is the gift of God, and he gives it to us so that we might see the unseen, that we might be certain of what doesn't even appear to be there. People will call us crazy. They will call us foolish. And yet the gift of faith brings certainty. Pascal said it this way. He said, what can be seen on earth indicates neither the total absence nor the manifest presence of divinity. It's somewhere in between. It's the presence of a hidden God. And everything bears this stamp. I would encourage you to look back at the events of your own life, especially believers in this room having trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Can you not look back at the events of your life and see how he ordered your steps? Even the moments when you didn't see him there, when you weren't acknowledging his presence, he was ordering your steps. Can you see the hand of providence that was providing for you when you had lack? We don't know a lot about lack in this culture. We know about abundance. But in those moments when you experienced lack, when you were without, that he stepped in and provided for you. Some in the room may be saying, well, I haven't seen the hand of God in my life. Let me point out a couple of things. First of all, you're still here, aren't you? You are still drawing breath with your lungs. I'm assuming that everyone in the room today has had enough food to eat, probably more than we need. Most of us drove here in a car that we own or will own someday when we're done with the payments. You live in a house. You're wearing clothes. This is what's called common grace. It's the grace of God to all peoples at all times, even the ones who reject him. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the just and the unjust, on the godly and the ungodly. He's just that good. But maybe you would say today, you know what, the, the hiddenness of God's just too much for me. I don't know how to trust him when I can't see him. I don't know how to put my faith in something unseen. That's why he sent Jesus. The Bible says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the very same word through whom all things were created. Jesus stepped out of heaven, the perfect Son of God, and stepped into the world to make the hidden God known to us. He came as the revelation of God to reveal God. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what this hidden God is like? You look to Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. You want to know what the hidden, you want to know what the hidden God is like? He's like this. 
He would not consider his place of glory in the heavens, the highest throne above all thrones, greater than any Persian king's throne. He did not consider that throne a throne to be maintained, rather one to be left. And he didn't step out of the heavenly throne onto an earthly throne. He stepped out of the heavenly throne into a lowly manger, a dirty, nasty cave born of the Virgin Mary among animals and all that goes along with them. You talk about being born in a barn. He truly was. You say, well, surely it went up from there. No, he lived the early parts of his life, the son of a poor carpenter in Nazareth, a city of which they said, what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? He was despised and rejected all of his life, according to Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows. But the sorrows were not his own. He took our sorrows. You say, what do you mean by that? About the age of 30, he departed from his home and went out and began a three-year-long ministry where he taught the Word of God, where he performed miraculous signs and wonders. And at the end of those days, at the end of those three years, they didn't applaud him and put him on the throne that he deserved. Instead, they put upon his head a crown of thorns and they laid him upon two beams of wood and they drove nails into his wrists and into his feet. You want to know what the hidden God looks like? You look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you see a God who loved you so much that he would take your place. Grace means that you don't get what you deserve. Because of your sin against the holy God, you deserve death. But he took your death so that he could give you life. He took the darkness of your sin upon himself so that he could bring you life. And he even experienced his own hiddenness. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? He quoted Psalm 22. He cried out with a loud voice and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, experienced the hiddenness of God himself so that he could relate to you in every way. He revealed the hidden God for you so that you could know him. You want to know what the hidden God looks like, you look to Jesus. And you find that he's probably not at all like what you expected. And yet he is infinitely more glorious than we ever anticipate. As we come to the end of our message today, I want to encourage you. If you would, just, just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Just a quiet moment before God. We won't linger long. So we've considered the hiddenness of God today. In the quietness of this moment, I just want to encourage you to look to Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of the faith we've been talking about this morning. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy of saving a multitude who would look to him by faith. If you've trusted in Christ and you are walking with him today, you are a part of that joy. 
But if not, let me encourage you in this way. If you are wrestling and struggling with the hiddenness of God, you say, I don't, I don't see the hand of God in my life. Would you look to Jesus and see the steadfast love of this God? You say, well, where would I see it? You'd look to the cross. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for you to clean up your life. He came after you. Knowing that you would have never come after him, he came after you. Knowing that you would have never pursued him on your own, he came pursuing you. Even to this moment. This hearing of the good news of the gospel that you can be saved from your sins and from the death that comes with it. That Jesus died in your place as your substitute so that you could have eternal life through faith in Him. What does that mean? It means trusting in Him. It means turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. And that's what we're inviting you to today. We're going to share a last song together, but more than the song, we want to extend to you this invitation. That you would look to the revelation of the hidden God, the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that you would hand all of your life, all of your sins and mistakes and shortcomings, that you would hand it all over to Him. And trust in His faithfulness, trust in His salvation trust in His grace. Father, would You guide us? Guide us by Your hand of providence today to respond to Your Word. Give the gift of faith in this moment, God, we pray in Jesus' name.